ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the third chapter of the book of James. We're continuing our study through James, and this morning we come to the end of chapter 3. We'll read verses 13 through 18, but we'll continue on in chapter 4 until we get to verse 12. Please give your full attention to God's Word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, as many of you know, I grew up only about an hour and a half from State College. And I've lived in the great state of Pennsylvania for almost my entire life. And until I moved here almost six years ago, I always greatly admired Penn State and State College. Happy Valley had a mystique about it. It seemed like such a wholesome and special place with beautiful, idyllic hills and valleys and a clean and prosperous downtown and safe and quiet neighborhoods 
a world-class university with excellent academics and excellent athletics, leadership in Old Main and in the classroom and on the athletic fields that seemed to do everything the right way. I spent my whole life very proud that my state's university had such a great reputation. When I applied to be the pastor of Oakwood back in the summer of 2011, I was thrilled about the prospects that the Lord might actually send me here to do ministry. But then two months before I got the call to come, the news about the Sandusky scandal broke. And then when I arrived here with my family in March of 2012, I found Happy Valley to be a changed place under a cloud. And I've watched, it's been kind of an interesting time to live here in the aftermath of the scandal. I've watched over the past five years as there's been a lot of effort put into repairing the image of our great university. But then it was only about a year ago that the Timothy Piazza scandal broke, the news of that broke and his death at the Beta Theta Pi fraternity house. And once again, again shame come over, came over our campus. Minded me, I was reading an article about the Piazza incident in Atlantic Magazine, and if you've only been reading the newspaper clippings, you've not been getting the whole story. It was interesting to read a much more in-depth, investigative article about what really happened during that weekend. Very disturbing. And as I finished that article, I was reminded of an article I read uh, written by uh, one of my favorite uh, sports writers, Michael, a guy named Michael Weinrib. He writes for Grantland, and he, he is actually from State College. He grew up in my neighborhood in Park Forest. And when the Sandusky scandal broke five and a half years ago, six, almost six years ago, actually, actually six years ago now, when it broke, he wrote an article from a hometown person's perspective, and I was... I just remembered, I just wanted to go back and look up this line. This is what he said. We've come to terms with the corruptibility of the human soul in State College. We've come to terms with the corruptibility of the human soul in State College, and we swept away the naive notion that this place where we lived so quietly was different than the rest of America. Now, don't get me wrong. I still believe State College is the best place on earth to live. But the illusion that this is uniquely a uniquely good and wholesome place is gone, probably forever. Back in 2012, when I was preparing to move up here from Philadelphia, people would ask me how I felt about moving to State College in the midst of all the dark news that was coming out of it at that time. And I said to him, you know what? It's not a bad thing that wickedness has been exposed there. It's not a bad thing. Because it's really hard to proclaim the gospel where people don't think they need it. When I was a kid, my parents and everyone in their generation talked about how wonderful the 1940s and 50s were compared to the era in which I grew up. 
seemed like back in those days, everything was perfect, people were good, people were kind. None of the things that happened in my generation were happening back then. Well, I later learned that all those things were happening. People were just much better at hiding them back then. People didn't become more sinful in the 60s and 70s. They just stopped hiding it as well. Actually, they became convinced they didn't need to hide it anymore. And I think this is kind of a new and relevant topic as we look at our newspapers and go online and check the news headlines, and it seems like every day now there's a whole new group of celebrities and politicians who are having their deep, dark secrets exposed to the world. And again, I say, that's not a bad thing. Because sin must be acknowledged. It must be exposed and it must be acknowledged in order for the gospel to have an effect. You know, we tend to think that people like Jerry Sandusky and wild frat boys, those are the people who really need Jesus. But we don't really think that our nice, friendly, upstanding neighbors need, really need Jesus. We tend to think that there are three kinds of people in the world. There's the really bad people that really need Jesus, and there's the really good people who really know Jesus, and then there's a whole big category of nice, upstanding, moral people in the middle, but that's not the way that Scripture looks at people. We need to be constantly reminded that from God's perspective, as he reveals it to us in his word, the Bible, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are sinners who know by grace that they desperately need Jesus Christ. And there are sinners who don't know that. That's the only two kinds of people in the world. That's what the book of James is about as we've been working our way through it. We're finding out that, Jesus, that James is writing this letter to remind people that there are only these two kinds of people in the world. He's writing this letter to expose hypocrisy in the church. Most of what he says centers around the idea of what is the difference between real faith in Jesus Christ and the kind of fake faith that we too often see in the church. He's writing to Jewish Christians in the first century and already it was a problem that there were many tares among the wheat, that there were many hypocrites in the church. I want you to start with that realization that everything that's said in this passage is written to people in the church. This isn't James pointing a finger at those bad people outside of the church. This is, G this is James pointing his finger at the church. And in this section at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, what he's doing is he's building upon what he had taught very strongly in chapter 2. Remember back in chapter 2, again, he's saying, what, what is the difference between real faith in Jesus Christ and a hypocrite's faith? The big difference is in the realm of good works. Real faith produces good works, whereas a dead faith does not produce good works. 
If you claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, but that doesn't transform your life, if he's not transforming your life, if he's not more and more conforming you into his image and leading you to do the works that he would have you do, then you have to question whether your faith is real. That's what James has been driving home over and over. Well, here he shifts the topic slightly, but it's very related, as we'll see in a moment. He goes from what's the difference between real faith and fake faith to what's the difference between real wisdom and fake wisdom or the world's wisdom. There's only two kinds of wisdom in the world. There's the wisdom from above that James talks about here, and then there's the wisdom from below, the wisdom that is the characteristic of this world, the wisdom that has its ultimate source in hell itself. And so James, in this passage, is going to talk about how beautiful wisdom from above is, the kind of wisdom that God promises to give to us. Remember that Jesus once said, wisdom is justified by all her children. Kind of an interesting thing to say. Wisdom is justified by your children. You realize what he's saying is the exact same thing that James is saying in this passage. You know when true wisdom resides in the heart and mind of a sinner when it produces good works. Wisdom is justified by all her children. What kind of attitude does the wisdom by which you live and the wisdom that you have gained, what attitude and actions does it produce? That's how you know whether it's real or not. The way James says it here in verse 13 is that he says, by his good conduct, let him, the one who claims to be wise, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. True wisdom produces good works. Let me take you back to what I said a few weeks ago, back when James talked about wisdom back in chapter 1. Remember then I said that based on study in the wisdom literature of Scripture, which encompasses books like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, if you put all of what those books of wisdom from the Old Testament teach us, you put it all together, here's the definition that I've come up with to kind of summarize what the Old Testament teaches us about what wisdom from God looks like. Here's the definition. It's skill and applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. That's the wisdom from above. Let me read it for you again. Skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. If that's what real wisdom looks like, then Penn State cannot give you wisdom. Penn State can give you a lot of knowledge. Penn State can give you a lot of experience and training. Penn State can give you degrees or maybe even titles, but it cannot give you wisdom. Wisdom, as Scripture defines it, and this is the beauty of the book of James, you start to see how this all ties together. Wisdom is what ties real faith together with real good works. How does faith produce good works? There's a process that takes you from having faith in Christ to, have it, to producing good works in your life. And it's all about wisdom. Faith means trusting God. You put your trust in God, which means if you're trusting in the one true God, you're going to trust in his word, which is scripture. 
And so by trusting in God, you trust in his word, and you gain knowledge from scripture about who God is, who you are, and what God's will for your life is, and what he has done to save you. That's what you gain from his word. You trust that knowledge that you gain. But then God gives you wisdom, which is that skill to apply what you've learned from God's word to your circumstances well, so that you make good choices that lead to good actions and good works that glorify God. So you see how the equation works. It begins with faith in Jesus Christ, which leads to trusting the word of God and learning the word of God, which leads to wisdom from above, which enables you, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, to apply God's word well to your circumstances so that you do good works that love others and love God. That's what the connection is between faith and wisdom and how it leads to good works. And so, that's why verse 18 says that if you have true wisdom, it produces a, what he calls, harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness. What does that harvest look like? Well, that's what he describes back in verse 17. Here's what the meekness of wisdom looks like. It's first of all pure, he says, because it's from God. It comes from God. It must be pure. Secondly, it's peaceable. And the word there in Greek means peace-loving. In other words, you have a passion to bring peace. And yes, that means cessation of hostility and reconciliation between people, but it's really speaking of the peace of Scripture, which is an all-encompassing peace, the peace of wholeness in life, of the, the removal of sin and all of its effects, that you have a passion to bring peace wherever God places you. You're peace-loving. Then it goes on to say that it is gentle, kind not harsh it's open to reason and I think actually as I looked into the language behind that probably a better translation is willing to yield to others wisdom from above has a submissive spirit to it that you're willing to yield to others for their benefit not to compromise truth but to yield to others in order to build them up and to serve them Goes on, to, goes on to say, full of mercy and good fruits. And we're immediately reminded of what he said back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that pure religion, religion that pleases God, is a religion that is compassionate for the needy among us. And then he goes on to say that real wisdom from above is impartial. And we talked about that back in chapter 2. It doesn't show favoritism. How could wisdom from above show favoritism among races or tribes or people or economic classes here on earth? How could wisdom show favoritism if wisdom begins by acknowledging that every good thing comes from God and that we are that nothing apart from his grace and that we are all sinners desperately in need of Jesus? How could you ever be partial? And then finally, he says that wisdom is sincere. It's not hypocritical. Wisdom from God does not cause a person to put on a front in front of people. You don't need to. Wisdom leads people to be authentic, real people. Able to be honest about who they are, about God and about others. It's really a list of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul describes in Galatians 5. And you notice the focus is on not directly how we love God, but how we love our neighbor. How do you treat other people? If you truly have wisdom from above based in faith in Jesus Christ, 
then it's going to have a transformative effect on the relationships in your life, the way you treat people around you. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look each of you not only to his own interest, let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. It's what Paul says there is the mindset of Christ. And the key to the mindset, the way of thinking and the attitude of the heart, the key to it is what James calls meekness. Humility. That's the key. How different is that from the world? Is that the key to the world's wisdom as you might hear it on the campus or the community? Humility. But the key to gaining wisdom from God is humility. Acknowledging your absolute dependence upon grace in order to know God, to know yourself, to know truth. And so that's what James really focuses upon. Is that's the biggest difference between worldly wisdom and wisdom from above, that wisdom that comes from God. Is that wisdom that comes from God comes by means of humility in our sinful hearts. And so what James does is he actually begins by getting into a long description of what the world's wisdom looks like. And you're going to recognize this. You see a lot of it in your own life as well as in the world around you. He calls this in verse 14, he calls this worldly wisdom, earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom. And he says this kind of wisdom produces the bad fruit, and he mentions two fruit. The bad fruit of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Two very related bad fruits. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This is what worldly wisdom is all about. Remember when we did our study through the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we talked about the writer of Ecclesiastes looking at the world under the sun. He took a hard, difficult, ugly look at life as if God did not exist. And that's what worldly wisdom that's, that's what it's based upon. The worldview of worldly wisdom is God doesn't exist or God doesn't care. And so this life is about getting the best that you can for yourself while you're still here to enjoy it. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's the world's wisdom. And the world's wisdom is driven, James says, by self-exaltation, selfish ambition, sinful ambition, ambition, to put yourself forward, to get the best for yourself, the best that this world has to offer before somebody else gets it. One of the best books that I've ever read that was very transformative very early in my Christianity, and I'm sure many of you have read, is called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And the best chapter I've ever read in any book on the issue of pride is the chapter that he calls, it's chapter 8 in Mere Christianity, called The Great Sin. Let me read to you what he says at the beginning of that chapter. The vice I'm talking about, C.S. Lewis says, is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual immorality earlier in the book, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. 
According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was though pride, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And everyone in this room is guilty of it. Everyone in this room wrestles with the sin, the great sin of pride every day. When you think of the prideful people, it includes those that are openly prideful. You know people like this. They're quick to tell you how great they are. They're quick to assert their rights, quick to assert, put themselves first, no matter what other people think. It's kind of unvarnished, unadulterated pride, and we know people like that. They're the arrogant jerks that we deal with in the office or the classroom or in the, the uh, marketplace. But then there's another group of the prideful people that are the secretly prideful people, the people who hide it well. The people who appear to be very nice and humble and law-abiding on the surface. But if you could dig below and you get to the heart, you'll find out that they're ultimately driven by the desire to look better in the eyes of others. That all of their niceness, all their goodness has a prideful root to it. Lewis writes about this, form, this insidious form of pride a little bit later on in the chapter. He says, pride can often be used to beat down the simpler vices. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect. Actually, today we call it self-esteem. Teachers, in fact, often appeal to a boy's pride, or as they call it, his self-respect, to make him behave decently. Many a man has overcome cowardice or lust or ill temper by learning to think that they are beneath his dignity. That is, they conquer it by pride. The devil laughs. He is perfectly content to see you becoming chaste and brave and self-controlled, provided all the time he is setting you up in the dictatorship of pride. Just as he would be quite content to see your chillblains, and I had to look that up because I didn't know what it was either. It's a skin condition. He would be quite content to see your skin condition cured if he was allowed in return to give you cancer. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. And so many of the people who appear very nice and humble actually are just as prideful as the arrogant jerk in your office place. But then there is also a third category of prideful person. That's the person who's angry and depressed. And they may even sit around saying bad things about themselves all the time, talk about what a terrible person they are. But in reality, what's going on under the surface there is that they are angry at other people for denying them the exaltation that they think they deserve. And so again, it's driven by pride. They sit around and sing, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I guess I'll go eat worms. And that becomes their lifestyle. But it's driven by this deep, longing desire to exalt themselves. 
James goes on to say that this kind of wisdom, this earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom produces bitter jealousy. And you see how that's related to having a heart that's driven by pride. Because jealousy takes pride not in being rich or good-looking or having a high title and status. It doesn't take pride in those things. It takes pride in being richer and wealthier and better-looking and having a better status than your neighbor. And that's the outcome of that pride. You become jealous of everyone around you. One commentator defined jealousy in this way. He said it's an intense, inappropriate sorrow over another person's achievements or possessions. And pride inherently puts you into that state of mind where you're going to be jealous of anything that anybody else achieves or has that's better than what you've achieved or what you have. And the longer that lingers, the more bitter you become and the more hard your heart becomes. In verse 16, James says that this passion for self-exaltation produces disorder and every vile practice. Same thing that C.S. Lewis said. This pride and jealousy produces all the other sins that you commit in life, ultimately. He elaborates on this in the beginning of chapter 4. Look at what he says there in the first verse. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You see, you have these sinful passions of your old nature that you were born with, that nature that's hostile to God, and you long for, you're passionate for, to have these lusts fulfilled, but yet you've got all these other sinners that have the same motivation all around you, and you're all competing for the small amount of stuff that's out there available. Pride inherently puts you into competition with others for the things that you're longing for, this, these possessions, the power, the status. And then in verse 2, James says that, we, that when we don't get what we lust for, and inevitably we can't, ultimately we can never satisfy those, those lusts in our heart, we murder others. Now he's talking to people that profess to be Christians, he's talking to people in the church, so I am pretty sure that he doesn't literally mean murder. I don't think that there was probably bloodshed in the congregation. He's talking about figurative murder, the kind of murder that Jesus talked about when he said, when you call your brother a fool, when you slander your brother, when you gossip against your brother, when you call your brother names, when you say angry words at your brother, you're actually committing the same sin that it ultimately will become murder if you don't control it. Whether you're hurting somebody with words or with knives and guns, it's all the same sin in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what James is referring to. And he gives an example of it in verses 11 and 12, if you skip down to the end of the passage, where there he talks about speaking against a brother. If you have wisdom from above, if your life is transformed by the wisdom that Jesus Christ gives to his people, then how can you go out and speak against your brother in a way that tears him down and doesn't build him up? And so you slander, you gossip, and it's because of your pride, because you're tearing somebody else down in order to build yourself up in the eyes of the person you're talking to, and you can see how evil this is. But let me remind you 
that James is not talking to people out on the street here. He's talking to people who profess to be believers in Jesus Christ. He's talking to people in the church. People who would claim to be living by God's wisdom and not by the world's wisdom. And James says, look at the fruit of your lives. Look at the evidence in the way that you're living. And he particularly goes to prayer. Do you notice that? That's the part of the person's life. You want to know whether somebody's living by wisdom from above or living from wisdom from beneath? Look at their prayer life. What James says is typically what you'll see is that people who are living by the world's wisdom don't pray. Because prideful people depend on their self-reliance. Prideful people rely on being self-sufficient. Why would a self-reliant, self-sufficient person need to pray? People living by the world's wisdom don't pray. Or, James says, if they do pray, they pray for the things that will feed their lustful nature and feed their goal to exalt themselves. And so, why does somebody living by the world's wisdom pray for God to give them health? Why do they pray for God to give them a bigger house, a better car, a better job, so that they can glorify God better? No. That's not what their wisdom is all about. Their wisdom is about glorifying self. And so you'll have people in the church praying, Lord, make me more healthy, make me better looking, make me more popular, make my life easy, give me a better job, give me a better car. But it's all to feed their own lustful desires for self-exaltation. That's how you see worldly wisdom in the church. What does that say about your relationship with God? If that's what your prayer life is like, if that's where your heart is, what does it say about your relationship with God? Again, C.S. Lewis in this great chapter on pride talks about how it affects our relationship with others in the church and outside the church and with God himself. Listen to what he says here on, on the beginning of the chapter. He says, It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. See if this doesn't sound familiar. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people, but pride always means enmity. Pride always means enmity. It is not, and not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. So, in verse 4 of chapter 4, James gives this very, very harsh assessment to many who were in the churches of his day. He says, you adulterous people, literally, you adulteresses, it's a feminine term, and it's meant to remind these Jewish Christians of what they had learned their whole life in the Old Testament. What is one of the major messages of the Old Testament? That God is a faithful covenant God who by grace chose Israel to be his bride. But Israel continually turned their back on their faithful God 
and became spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. They prostituted themselves with the lusts in the flesh of this world and served other gods. And God continually presents himself in the Old Testament as the jilted faithful husband by an adulterous wife. And James is saying to these professing believers in the church in the first century, you adulteresses, you're in the same place. You're committing the same sin. You're using worldly wisdom to gain answers and pleasures to your earthly lusts so that you can exalt yourself in the eyes of this world. He goes on to say, friendship with the world is enmity with God. You cannot love the world, this system that lives, this whole worldly wise system that operates outside of God's authority in rebellion against God. You cannot love the world and love God at the same time. It's an impossible task, but how many professing Christians try to do it? Going back to what James said about prayers for the worldly wise professing believer. Look at it this way. What he's really saying here is that if you ask God to give you better health, more money, a better job, more friends. If you ask for these things to feed your prideful, lustful heart so that you can be unfaithful to him, it's just like a wife going to her husband and saying, honey, could I have $1,000? And he says, well, maybe, but why? What do you want the $1,000 for? And she says, oh, I want to go spend the weekend with, my, with that guy down the street in the Bahamas. That's the exact imagery that James put, is putting before us. How unthinkable, how shocking of an image that a wife would ask her husband for the resources to go commit adultery against him. But when you pray in worldly wisdom, that's exactly what's happening. That's why verse 5, it's a difficult verse to translate in the original language, but the gist of it is easy to get. God is a jealous husband. Praise God that he's jealous. He's not going to allow you to live this worldly wise life, prostituting yourself to other gods and living for your passions that will only lead to your destruction. He loves you with a pure and perfect love. But then you have the last section of chapter 4 that we read today. And at this point, I need to remind you that this passage, again, I've said it three times, but you need to understand this. This is written to professing believers. That means this passage is written to some people who are sitting here this morning. People who would fall into this definition of being a hypocrite. Of somebody who comes to church on Sunday morning or maybe even goes to Bible study or serves on a committee and they profess to have faith in Christ and they profess to live by God's wisdom from above, but by James' definition and James' description, you are actually striving to be a friend of the world and you live by worldly wisdom every other part of your life. And the bad news for you who are seeking to be both friends of the world and friends of God is found right here in verse 6. God opposes the proud. 
God opposes the proud. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God is against you. Reminds me of a speech I heard many years ago. I was at a Ligonier conference and Johnny Erickson was speaking. Many of you know who Johnny is. She's, uh, she's been a paraplegic since she was a teenager. Her whole life, her whole adult life, she's lived without the use of her body, basically from her shoulders down. Lived in a wheelchair. And she was talking in that seminar about how life in a wheelchair, in that degree of disability, how that's taught her to depend upon the Lord. And she is, you know, I don't know her personally, but of all the Christian popular people that I have heard about or have known, she comes across as the most genuinely humble person that I've ever really encountered. Listen to what she said in that speech. She said, those who are most handicapped are the ones who, when the alarm clock goes off in the morning, they throw back the covers, they jump out of bed, they take a quick shower, then they give God a speedy tip of the hat with a fast quiet time, and then they rush out the door on automatic cruise control. If you live like that, God resists you, she says. God resists you. God is against the proud, the self-resourceful, the self-reliant, and he gives grace to the humble, even to those who are humiliated by their weaknesses. That's what she learned with a lifetime in a wheelchair. Verse 6, though, I don't want to end on that down note. Verse 6 gives hope. The hope is there for all who might be here this morning, and we're all in this category to one degree or another, but I'm talking to the people who genuinely are living by the world's wisdom on a daily basis, and yet still calling yourself a Christian. Here's hope for spiritual adulterers and adulteresses. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. Literally, he gives abundant grace. Grace is available to you in spite of your spiritual adultery. God has provided grace in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to read phrases that he gives here at the end of the chapter, and it's going to sound like we're taking, we're doing the work, we're taking the initiative, but understand that James is assuming that these people know what the gospel teaches, is that God has taken the first step. He is initiated. He has given grace by sending his son to the cross to die for our sins, even the sins of pride and spiritual adultery that we've been talking about this morning. It all came at a great cost for Christ, but it's freely available to any sinner. But you must have faith. You must put your faith in Christ, trust in his word, gain knowledge from the word so that you have wisdom from above so that you can live a life that is pleasing to God. That's the life of a disciple. And it begins with humility. Notice that. Look at verses 7 to 10. Here is the path to true wisdom from above. It begins with humility. He says, humble yourself. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your need. That's the first and crucial step. Nothing else can happen until that happens. Worldly wisdom tells you that you need self-esteem to be confident and successful in this world. Jesus says, deny yourself and follow me. Paul says, die to yourself and live for Christ. But let me make it clear. Again, humility is not hating yourself. 
Humility, you know, the world, in worldly wisdom, that's what humility is. Oh, somebody's always talking about what a terrible person they are. We've already said that's not what it is. It's not hating yourself. Matter of fact, let me go back to C.S. Lewis one more time. Here's how he ends that chapter, talking about what real humility looks like. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. That's what wisdom from above produces. Secondly, submit to God. Trust him. Put your life under his authority. Live by his word because he promises that he will give you the wisdom to live it out and find the abundant life that he promises. Follow Jesus, who lived by what he prayed at the most crucial testing point of his life when he said as he faced the cross, Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. He trusted, submitted to the Father. That's what wisdom looks like. Thirdly, resist the devil. Stop listening to the devil's lies. He's the father of lies, Jesus said. Stop listening to him. That's what Eve did. God gave his wisdom to Adam and Eve, but Satan came and tempted them to distrust what God had told them was true, to distrust the wisdom from above, and to believe the wisdom from below, this demonic wisdom that Satan presented. And that's how sin started, and that's how it continues every day in your life and my life. Then he says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And again, when you first read that, it doesn't sound like gospel language, because again, doesn't God do all the work in bringing us to himself? But no, there's always the response. God initiates, God provides the way, God provides, provides the ability to respond, but we must respond. We must respond to his offer of grace. As the old saying goes, if you feel far from God, guess who moved? He's always been there. This grace is available. And if you have breath in your lungs and another moment to live, you've got an opportunity to receive this grace, this abundant grace that James is talking about. You know, we often hesitate to apologize to someone when they're mad at us. You ever had your parents mad at you or a brother or sister or a friend? They're really mad at you. And you really are sorry for what you did that made them angry, but you're hesitant to go and talk to them about it and apologize because you're afraid you're just going to get blasted again and, you know, it's going to be twice as bad because you're going to get blasted twice for what you did wrong. That's often why we hesitate to apologize to one another. You realize what James is saying here. Don't, don't hesitate to come to God seeking grace. Because you're not going to find God, you know, sitting back there with his arms crossed, angry, trying to decide whether he's going to respond kindly when you come. This is James saying, no, come. God will draw you near as you draw near to him. It's the message of the story of the prodigal son. It's the father who saw his prodigal son coming from a distance and went running out to meet him. If you draw near to God, he will run to you. That's what grace looks like. 
But he does end on a bit of a sour note, doesn't he? Be wretched and mourn and weep. You see, that's what a mindset and a heart that is changed by wisdom from above, that's how it responds to sin when we, we see it as God sees it. When we sin as, see sin as God sees it, it's repugnant, it's horrible, it's ugly. And the right response, the response of wisdom from above is to be wretched and mourn and weep, to grieve deeply over the sin. That's the kind of sorrow that leads to repentance. You see, Paul says to us, rejoice always. We're to live a life where we're rejoicing always. But he's talking to repentant Christians when he says that. James is talking to hypocrites who are still living in their sin and loving their sin while trying to be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. And so James says to those hypocrites, to you hypocrites who are here this morning, weep, grieve, mourn over your sin because that's what repentance looks like. And once you receive the grace that's promised, then you will find the joy that the Lord promises, the joy that comes from grace. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Let's pray. Father, even though we are all hypocrites to one degree or another, we recognize that James has in view in this passage some in the church who seem content in their hypocrisy, who seem to have staked out a life that is characterized by worldly wisdom and living for the world and self-exaltation while still adding just a few elements of biblical wisdom and activity in the church. And so, Lord, for those who are the most clear and central focus of this passage, I pray that your spirit would bring that kind of grieving conviction upon them. I pray, Lord, that you would open eyes and open ears. I pray that you would show sin to be the ugly rebellion against you that it is. Awaken a desire for this wisdom from above that transforms the life and produces good works. Lord, I pray that your work of revival and reformation would continue in your church, even this church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.